Hello everyone and welcome. This is Reading Hannah Arendt with Roger Berkowitz. The podcast of the Hannah Arendt Center for Politics and Humanities at Bard College. The Hannah Arendt Center provides an intellectual space for passionate, uncensored, nonpartisan thinking in the spirit of Hannah Arendt. My name is Jana Mader and I'm the Director of Academic Programs at the Hannah Arendt Center. It is my pleasure to introduce Roger Berkowitz, Founder and Academic Director of the Hannah Arendt Center. Roger Berkowitz is a Professor of Politics, Philosophy and Human Rights at Bard College. He's the winner of the 2019 Hannah Arendt Prize for Political Thought given by the Heinrich Böll Foundation. Stay on for more info at the end of today's episode. Our current book is The Origins of Totalitarianism, published in 1951. Make sure to subscribe to not miss an episode. Hi, Roger. It's great to see you again. Great to see you, Jana. Today we are reading Chapter 8, Continental Imperialism, the Pan Movements. And you will be talking about the elements of pan movement, such as its anti-national character, what it promised, and who supported it. You'll also analyze tribal nationalism, how it is different from nationalism today, and how tribal nationalism emerged. And before our chapter reading, I'd like to ask you about tribalism today. Some say that America is becoming more tribal and claim that tribalism had elected Trump. And I was wondering, do you agree in, in how to overcome this and maybe also how tribalism is um, connected to identity politics, which is also a current topic? Yeah, thanks, Jana. I mean, I, I think there's this question of tribes comes back perennially, right? Um, you know, there's a, there's a hope, I think, amongst many people, or some people at least, that, you know, we're all Americans and we're all equal Americans. and And it doesn't really matter if we're Muslim or Jewish or black or white or Native American or 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 Anglo-Saxon. And that is the American creed. It obviously has not always uh, worked in practice, and yet it is it is the creed that that there this is a land in which you can be all of these tribes, and yet you can still also be a, a American. There's a way in which this American creed, which is supposed to be anti-tribal is itself a tribe. Americanism is a tribe. And, you know, we're seeing today a, a rebellion against 70 or so years of post-war American leadership in the world, um, in which many people from all over the world found it quite valuable to be led by this idea of Americanism. And they found it to be something they wanted for both economic, but also for moral and political reasons. And yet today we're seeing the rise of a number of opposing multipolar strands that say that this American creed is really a kind of liberal creed for civil rights and gay rights and um, trans rights and, and minority rights that is offensive to Hindus in India or Muslims in Turkey or China or Uh, Iran or Hezbollah or, or, or Israel or Gaza. And, and these people want to live a much more tribal existence and they don't want to be under the sort of yoke of what they see as American tribalism, what other people saw as sort of an international regime of, of the rule of law. And, and so, you know, one of the problems we have is that in this battle between cosmopolitans and tribalism is that cosmopolitans are themselves a tribe and they often don't want to see themselves as a tribe, just like Americanism or legalism is a tribe that doesn't want to see itself as a tribe. You know, how do you address that? And, and, and this, this kind of being fed up with American legalism in the international community is also um, very much apparent at home. You have all sorts of tribes, be they, Black Lives Matter or indigenous rights or trans rights or gay rights or rural rights versus urban rights 
uh, white rights, and people are breaking up into what you called identity politics, tribes, and demanding and that they be taken seriously and be given rights, not as Americans, but as you know, Northern Americans or urban Americans or white Americans or black Americans or indigenous Americans or trans Americans, whatever it may be, Jewish Americans and Muslims Americans. And, and how do we address that? Because on the one hand, these tribes are real and it's a denial of reality uh, to say, no, we're just all Americans. And yet if we just break up into tribes, there's not much left of, uh, of, of a kind of uh, pluralistic open uh society uh that has you know for many people made america unique and and special for 200 so on years you know rn's response to this is is always uniquely complicated and nuanced which is that um what makes america great in her point of view is that you can have tribes you can be jewish you can be muslim you can be french and yet you can also be american you know i think the the hardest one was always black. Can you be black and American? And I think for much of American history, you couldn't. I think today, for the most part, you can. And so the question, though, is the hard question is, how can we rebalance? Um, I think a lot of people find that it's the balance has gone too far, too far towards a kind of cosmopolitan Americanism that doesn't give people the tribal affinities they want. And these tribes are asking for more. How can we balance giving tribes more authority, more semi-autonomous authority, if you want to put it in that way, and yet also have them be part of a national cosmopolitan political culture uh, in which people respect each other's rights and different ways to live? And that's going to have to mean that the kind of liberal cosmopolitan elite institutions give up some of their control in order to allow more regional, racial, religious plurality in the country. And on the other hand, those groups are going to have to then respect the liberal state. And right now, what you see is many groups in the country, whether it's the MAGA movement or, or others, the environmental movement, the Black Lives Matter movement, very much setting themselves against the state, setting themselves against um, state institutions, which they find corrupt or inadequate uh, for, for a whole host of reasons. And the question is, can we rebalance that delicate balance of weights between cosmopolitanism and tribalism? You know, as you know, Yana, every year the Hannah Rent Center has a major conference and we sort of set ourselves a research agenda for the year. And, and this conflict, this contest, or this tension between cosmopolitanism and tribalism uh, is going to be our conference topic and research topic for 2024. And so I'm really looking forward to thinking about it and talking about it over the next year. That's very exciting. That will be October 2024 back here um, in Bard College. You will mention the mob as it is a central for pan movements and the mob dominates pan movements in the chapter reading that we're about to listen to. I just wanted to review that quickly because we talked about mobs in chapter five. What is the mob for Hannah Arendt? Is there a mob today? Um, yeah, just real quick. Yeah, so I mean, Arendt, and I've said this before, she sometimes uses these words with some precision and sometimes less precision. But for her, the mob is a group of, a group of people who are often uh, not very powerful in society, like the, the lower classes who want to take power and they gather together and they organize and they're often led by uh, a demagogue or an intellectual and they seek power and take power away from uh, elites that, that they, that they think are corrupt or denying them the, the level of power they, they want. In that sense, the mob is different from what she calls the masses the masses are the detritus of all the different classes who are kicked out and have no interests. The mob has an interest. The mob has an interest in, in power. And the masses really just want to move and make movements. The mob she talks about in this chapter on, on, on continental imperialism and tribal nationalism is sort of a mix of both things. It's, it is a kind of 
mob that wants power and wants to attack the state, but it also is the kind of masses that just wants to move. And the pan movements are movements. And she talks a lot about the mood of the masses. What they want is excitement. They want to feel belonging and meaning. And in a society in which there's a strong sense of atomization and meaninglessness and not a lot of sense of strong nationalism or patriotism or belonging to a group that gives your sense a sense of of a purpose in the world. The mob slash masses, what they want more than anything else is excitement. And they want to feel part of a movement that matters in the world. And so what she's interested in is, is the way that there's an alliance between intellectuals who create this idea of a tribal consciousness and the mob that then feels empowered by it and and they use each other the intellectuals and the mob to build a movement that in the end is centered on destruction destruction of institutions destruction of the state the intellectuals are attracted to this destruction because they sort of stand apart and they see the corruption of society and they just laugh and find it they find that the, the the bourgeoisie the wealthy capitalists deserve what they're getting the destruction of the institutions and the mob or the masses welcome this destruction because they've been excluded from power and they want to take power and, and so these pan movements are really about um the rise of a mob that is focused on taking power not though for a particular political program they're not socialist or capitalist but more because they find that their exclusion from power has been unjust and they want to take power and that's what it's about not there's not a particular class interest or you know interest of you know in a in property interest or workers interest or intellectual interest it's much more just tear everything down and and let's see how we can redivvy things up. Thank you, Roger. Thanks, Yana. I hope you all enjoy the chapter. So welcome, everybody. My name is Roger Berkowitz. I'm the founder and academic director of the Hannah Arendt Center here at Bard College, and happy to be with you today for the virtual reading group. We're still reading The Origins of Totalitarianism by Hannah Arendt. We are in the midst of this long and central section of the of the text on imperialism. This is, I think, one of the real insights of, of her work, that imperialism is the is is one of the core origins, one of the core elements that leads to uh totalitarianism, right? And we have looked at different aspects of that imperialism, the sort of general idea of imperialism that it's a a, a constant expansion and growth that it's connected to the demand for power by the bourgeoisie, that it's connected to a rise in overseas imperialism of, of bureaucratic rule and bureaucratic governance. All of that has, 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 has been uh, in the first three chapters of, of this sort of central book on imperialism. Chapter eight is one of the longest chapters in the book. It's one of the most difficult to read today simply because it's just a history that I think many of us don't know. I mean, I know the first time I read this book, I was not I was not aware of this whole history of the pan movements, the the pan German movements and the pan Slavic movements. And um I think it's just not a history that even many people today in modern Germany or Russia or or Europe know much about. And so it is a bit sometimes difficult and and dark to 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 try and understand uh, and yet it's it's absolutely central uh and we can't deny that we read on page 222 the first page of the chapter that nazism and bolshevism so the two great great used in the sense of important and and clearly of significance the two great uh totalitarian movements of the 20th century Nazism and Bolshevism owe more to pan-Germanism and pan-Slavism, respectively, than to any other ideology or political movement. Pan-Germanism and pan-Slavism for Arendt are really 
more than any other movement or ideology, more than anti-Semitism, more than racism, more than anti-statism, a lot of the other elements of totalitarianism that she will talk about. These are the ones that really provide the ground for totalitarianism. And so if we want to understand totalitarianism, in many ways, this is the most uh, important chapter in the book. And as I said, it's one of the most difficult. And so we're going to try and go through it a little slowly today, see if I can make it make some sense. And uh, I really, you know, I know we, we, we have lots of different styles of questions and stuff, but um, I hope that some of the questions will be about the text and about your attempt to understand this. Cause I do think this is, this may be the central chapter of the whole book just to, to, to sort of put it in, in perspective and help understand the way this chapter works. If you look at the word, the pan movements, right? Um, pan Germanism and pan Slavism, there are three parts of what the pan movements can represent. And those three parts will become the three parts of this chapter. So the first part relates to the word pan. Pan means all. And so these movements are all encompassing. They are going to be what she calls tribal nationalist movements that replace the nation state. They are pan movements, all encompassing movements, in that they seek to become movements for all Germans wherever Germans are, right? Whether they're Germans are living in Germany or Austria or in Poland or, or somewhere else and for all Slavs and thus against the principle of the nation state, which is always limited because it's a territorial nation state, the pan movements are imperialist, uh, all encompassing, and they are valid anywhere that Germans or Slavs might be which is why they are part of this imperialist, constantly growing, world-dominating movement. The second part is that insofar as these pan movements are not limited by a nation state, they are not state-oriented movements. They are imperialist movements, and thus they are driven by what she calls a contempt for the law. As a result, they lead to an anti-Western mood. And in an anti-Western mood, anti-nation state or, or legal mood, and thus they turn to lawlessness or bureaucracy as their mode of governance. And then the third part is movements, so the pan movements. And insofar as these pan movements uh, were imperialist, seeking to encompass all Germans or all Slavs, and they embraced a bureaucratic regime as a mode of organization, she says that they really operated according to a mood. And this is, I know <laughs> mood is not exactly a technical term, uh, and yet it's one that's absolutely central for Arendt's understanding of totalitarianism. The point is that pan-Germanism, she says, and also pan-Slavism, uh, discovered how much more important a general mood was for creating a new administrative non-legal, anti-legal form of government than any particular interests or party platforms that could be laid down. She says the only thing that counts in a movement is that it be kept in motion. And, and so these pan movements did not actually have strong interest-based political platforms. What they had was a sense of constantly moving forward to achieve a mood a goal uh, of unity of their Germans or of Slavs. And so these three parts, the pan tribal nationalism, the anti-state, anti-law administrative lawlessness, and the fact that they replaced interest-based parties with non-party movements or, or, non, or, or movements that were above parties uh, are the three parts of this chapter. And they're the three parts of the pan movements that she thinks are central for understanding totalitarianism. She characterizes the pan movements in a number of ways in the first, mostly in the first four or five pages of, of the chapter. It's not systematic. And I think it's hard. I think these first two or three pages of this chapter, maybe 
some of the harder pages of the books to really parse. And so I've, I've identified almost 18 different elements of what she calls these pan movements in, in these first few pages. And I'm just going to sort of go through them quickly because they give you a sense of the mood that she's talking about. The first on page 223 is that these pan movements are anti-national, right? They're not seeking to create a nation state. They are imperialist. They are pan. They're, they're bigger than any kind of state or nation state aspect. The cohesive element uh, that they promise is not economics. They don't promise like a kind of economic growth or economic security. What they promise is an enlarged tribal consciousness. And this tribal consciousness, enlarged tribal consciousness, unites people of a similar folk, or in German with a V, folk, in, in English, folk. And it's independent of history or geography. The point is not that the Germans or the Slavs, you know, all speak the same language. Sometimes they don't. It's not that they uh, live in the same country or the same place. They don't. They may have even different histories, but they are, because of their fact that they're Germans or they're Slavs, somehow united in this tribal consciousness. This continental imperialism, she says, is thus closer to race and racial concepts than its similar version of overseas imperialism, right? Overseas imperialism, you know, goes over and rules over foreign peoples. And there's a racial element to that, which we saw in Egypt with Lord Cromer and, and India and, and South Africa. But continental imperialism is not just, you know, one race here, one group here rolling over another group. It's actually a tribal consciousness of people. And we base them not on location or geography, but on race. And so it's even more racialized than overseas imperialism. As a result, it really wasn't supported by capitalists or businessmen. She says the race concepts also were not based on specific experiences. The Germans in Russia were not recognizably German. Uh, they were made to be German. Uh, and so it mobilizes this pan-German ideology as a political weapon. The ideological focus of pan-movements, she says, makes them particularly attractive to intellectuals. And this is an important point to consider. The people who supported these pan-movements were not generally capitalists or business people who were often the people, right, driving overseas imperialism. We we read about that in, in the chapter on the bourgeoisie. These were not, the, 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 the pan movements are actually driven by lawyers, teachers, professors, students, and civil servants. It's much more of an intellectual movement than it is a, a capitalist or economic movement. So she says they are originated on the campuses among students and faculty. She says they're more radical, these pan movements, than other uh, similar movements, because unlike regular imperialism or overseas imperialism, it didn't seek to rule over other colonies and other states. It actually sought to destroy all politics, all political institutions, including, and most importantly, the state. So it was a kind of destructive nihilist movement in an important way, which will come up again later in the book. In the midst of this frenzy of disintegration or nihilism and social atomization, the, the breakup of, 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 of people and, the, and, and people's feeling that they're not part of a movement, she says what men wanted most of all was to belong to a group, a movement at any price. What the pan movements offered was an ideology that was more attractive to everyday people than tangible political gains or interests, economic interests or other social interests. And so this is what she means by the mood, that the pan movements are held together more by a general mood than any clearly defined interests or aims. With no specific program, right? They weren't conservative or liberal or progressive or, or radical. They were simply about creating this mood. They sought she calls an all-encompassing mood of, quote, total predominance, the pure will to dominate. This is on 225. So what these pan movements wanted was to take these atomized, unhappy, precarious citizens and give them a sense of being part of a, a tribal movement that was going to dominate and that would win and make them thus feel powerful. 
If overseas imperialism, she says, is dominated by capital, which is in alliance with the mob, but over the mob and such that the mob works for capital, and that was true for most overseas imperialism with the exception of South Africa, in the pan movement, she says, it's the mob that dominates. A mob is led by, quote, a certain branch of intellectuals who know how to organize the mob and are aware of how race can be used to fire the mob and organize the mob. And that's on page 226. And so the mob becomes central in these pan movements, organized by intellectuals. The expansion of imperialism in these pan movements, she says, is justified on racial grounds to bring Germans outside the Reich into the Reich, right? So Germans outside in or Slavs outside of Russia back into the fold. And in that sense, there's a kind of holiness to this pseudo-mystical pan-Slavism or pan-Germanism. The holy German empire, holy mother Russia, offers a kind of what she calls pseudo-mystical nonsense that is what inspires this effort to bring all Germans or all Slavs together. These movements, she says, are largely comprised of intellectuals, as I said before, who are interested in this pseudo-mystical nonsense. She says, tribal nationalism begins from a mystical element, which is to be realized in the future, not in the past. And thus the temporality of these pan movements is futural and, and intellectuals are good at imagining a, a future idea that could be brought into, into being. Finally, she says that such tribal nationalism imagines a people, whether it's the Germans or the Slavs, of one against all, and thus, like racism itself, denies the, the, the humanity of man and, and sees politics as a, as a zero-sum game of conflict between different nations. Okay, so that's a series of, you know, if you read the first five pages of the, of the chapter, a series of points, insights, claims that she makes that I think help to elaborate what I've tried to call this mood that she's talking about, and that I think is absolutely central to understanding the chapter. The chapter then is, as I said, bro broken into three parts. The first part is on tribal nationalism, and that begins on, on page 227. Tribal nationalism emerged from two frustrations. The failure to found a nation state. So there were a number of dozens of nations throughout Europe that were never encompassed in a nation state. So the Roma, the Jews, you know, the Slavs as a whole, the Czechs had Czechoslovakia, but what about the Slovaks? Well, you know, and there were many others. And then the second frustration was the failure to achieve national emancipation for many of these states. And she says, out of those two frustrations, there became this idea of, well, we want a tribal nationalism. And that the second point she wants to make here is that for these tribal nationalisms, anti-Semitism became the mainstay of these movements. She makes that point on 229. Both pan-Slavism and pan-Germanism make anti-Semitism absolutely central to their worldview. And she says this is true, even though for many of the people who were engaged in promoting pan-Slavism and pan-Germanism, they had almost no experience of Jewish people. And so uh, we have to understand that this is a particularly modern form of anti-Semitism, not really aimed at a hatred of Jews, but using anti-Semitism as a political weapon, as an ideology aimed at the state. Remember, these are movements that are aimed at the destruction of the state. So this goes back in many ways to uh, a lot of our discussion with chapter two, the Jews, the nation state, and the birth of anti-Semitism, where she wants to argue that anti-Semitism emerged as a political weapon against the state and to the extent that Jews got associated with the state early on. In these pan movements, it's not just that the Jews were associated with the state. For example, in, in the Austro-Hungarian Empire, which was a multi-ethnic state, an attack on the Jews was an attack on all nationalities, and thus an attack on the very nature of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And so she she is going to talk about how attacking the Jews became part of an attack on the imperial structure. At the same time, we'll start to see that 
a big part of the claim of these pan-Slavic movements, as I mentioned before, is this mood of holiness, of chosenness. And in an ironical twist, since the Jews had always seen themselves as a chosen people, they became the minority that these pan-Slavic, pan-German movements set themselves against because they saw the Jews as the biggest competitor in their claim for uh, world dominance. I mean, of course, the Jews were not dominating the world, but they imagined that they were. This tribal nationalism that she's here starting to think about is to be distinguished from Western nationalism. Or, and, and this is a really important point because you know we think of nationalism as nationalism. And she's saying here that we actually have to make a distinction. So Marx, she says, understood that Western nationalism on, is based in the emancipation of peasants who become the conscious bearers of the nation. And she writes about this on page 229 to 230. In this Western view that Marx understood, nationalism requires that people acquire a consciousness of themselves as a cultural and historical entity. And so they have a territory, which is a national home. And there are migrations come to an end. People become part of France or Germany or Italy. And they form a geographical locus of citizenship. And the emancipated, emancipated peasants form a national consciousness as Germans, Frenchmen, Englishmen, or Italians, or whatever. And the prototypical institution of these Western nation states is the army in which all people in France or all people in Italy and all people in Germany can, can serve in the army as Italians or Germans, whatever their historical provenance may be. But against this kind of Western nationalism is what she sees emerging with these pan movements and she calls tribal nationalism, which is not nationalist. She says on page 229, tribal nationalism, the driving force behind the continental imperialism, had little in common with the nationalism of fully developed Western nation states. If the nation sought national rights and the state sought the rights of man, this tribal nationalism was something very different. It was born in what she calls rootlessness. And so tribal nationalism is a, is a nationalism without a nation state, right? There is no state for all Germans. There is no state for all Slavs. And so it's born of those people who have, whose national consciousness has no territorial home, who are rootless. It can't thus end immigration, right? It can't provide a national consciousness that's geographically focused and that has institutions like an army that provide a, a home for people. It's restless. It's rootless. And so on 232, she'll say rootlessness was the true source of that enlarged tribal consciousness, which actually meant that members of these people had no definite home but felt at home wherever other members of their tribe happened to live. And thus this tribal consciousness, she says on 232, is a new form of organization, the pan movements. It's not a nation state, right? And a nation state, and we'll talk about this more next week when we talk about chapter nine on the nation state, but a nation state is a contradiction. A state is a legal entity which treats all people equally, but a nation state has one people, the national people, which is hierarchically superior to the rest. And it was this conflict between the nation and the state, which she says leads to the breakdown of nation states. And we'll talk about that in chapter nine. That's the, that's the topic of chapter nine. But here, the point is that this tribal consciousness began to emerge in these pan-Slavic and pan-German movements. And the hallmark of these movements is that they include all of what was called in German the Staatsfremde, the, the people who are not a part of your state, so they're aliens to your state, but are part of your folk. So Germans living in Austria, Germans living in, in Germany, Germans living in Poland, Germans living in Russia. These were Staatsfremde. These were people who weren't in your state and yet were part of who you were. And the idea was to create a new movement a new imperialist pan movement that would include Germans or Slavs everywhere where they were. And this futural consciousness of a folk community 
is 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 the sort of source of this pseudo mystical divinely chosen tribal consciousness so tribal nationalism in this sense replaces the idea of a human dignity in which all people can be citizens of a state with the idea of national dignity it's now no longer the case that if you live in germany and you're jewish or you or you're czech or you're russian you can become a member of the german state you have to be german right or you have to be slavic in order to be a member of the pan-Slavist state. And so there's a contempt for the liberal idea of a, of a dignity of man. And there's no distinctly human dignity left in these pan-tribal movements. She has another section of this chapter. And again, this chapter is not organized so well, but I think you're starting to get a sense, a hope of this mood of tribal consciousness. But what she says is that in this in Europe, in Central Europe, what she calls the belt of Eastern European nations, which in which these national consciousness began to emerge, a terror began to emerge. And the terror was the terror at the idea of a common origin of man or the idea of humanity or the idea of the dignity of man. Why, does, why do these different groups start to feel a sense of dread or terror at the other groups. She says, because they knew them, they interacted with them and they knew that these people, you know, these other groups, the, so the Slavs or the, or the Czechs could do evil. And the more people know about one another, she says on page 235, the less they want to recognize other peoples as their equals, the more they recoil from the ideal of humanity. I mean, we have to take this seriously. This is this is so against most of our common sense. She cites uh, a footnote in footnote 41. She cites um, a man named Fryman and he writes, quote, we know our own people, its qualities and shortcomings. Mankind, we do not know. And we refuse to care or get enthusiastic about it. One can believe in the solidarity of the Germanic peoples. Whoever is outside this sphere does not matter to us. This goes against not only our liberal idea that we can all be part of one idea of humanity, of the dignity of man, that all people have a kind of equal dignity, but it goes against the liberal idea that the more we educate ourselves and get to know other peoples, the more we will come to respect them, right? The idea is if we have cultural exchanges between Russians and Americans or Israelis and Palestinians will come to see them as real human beings and will and will learn to respect them. And Aaron says that's actually not usually the case. I mean, yeah, and and you know, when you first meet, you can have dinner together and you can talk, but when push comes to shove, when the chips are down as she likes to say, knowing someone well just means you know in your mind that they're not you and they will in the end sell you up the river and you can sell them up the river. And we believe in the end in our tribes. This is a very controversial idea that in the end, the people of Eastern Europe saw people in a tribal way and they trusted their tribe and they didn't trust other tribes. And if we ask the question of how can we be responsible, right, for humanity, her answer is, in the end, um, most of us can't. We reject such a common responsibility. And she says, the rejection of such a common responsibility makes idealistic talk about mankind and the dignity of man an affair of the past. That's on 235. I, I, I bring this up because I think, you know, it, it's, it's a fact. It's it's, it, this is one of those parts of Arendt that is a challenge for, for many of us and many liberals. It's one in which uh, she is aware of the deeply tribal uh, nature of, of humanity in some way. She's not in any way saying we have to just then break into tribes and, and not develop a politics that overcomes tribes. She thinks we have to, but it's much harder than we might imagine. All right. The second part of the chapter is on the administrative bureaucratic system or what she calls lawlessness. The key here is that 
there's an inheritance of lawlessness. There's an affinity between bureaucratic machines and movements. And that affinity is that they both have an open disregard of law. There are two ideas of bureaucracy, she says, that are that are similar and yet different. And this is a really important distinction. So one idea of bureaucracy is the, is the deformation of the civil service as inefficient, vexatious, and pursuing its own interest, right? I think this is the idea of democracy that we today sometimes call um, the deep state or the, the bureaucratic class or the civil servant class or the professional managerial elite, as it's sometimes called today, the professional managerial class. And this, this group has entrenched itself at times in a body politic like a parasite, she says on page 244, and developed its own class interests and become a useless organism whose only purpose appears to be chicanery and prevention of normal economic development. This is the bureaucracy as we see it in many modern liberal democracies. She says it's, a, it's inefficient and vexatious, but it's still in the end answerable to law. And it's thus, it doesn't yet have a kind of pseudo mystical aura to it. But the other idea of bureaucracy is the pseudo mystical bureaucratic machine. This is where the administrator considers the law powerless and acts beyond the law. Uh, in governments, she says on page 244, in governments by bureaucracy, decrees appear in their naked purity as though they were no longer issued by powerful men but were the incarnation of power itself and the administrator only its accidental agent. So if you, if you take seriously the attack on the administrative state or the deep state that's going on today um, in American politics and in politics around the world, you know, you, you have to ask yourself, is the attack on it simply an attack on a vexatious and inefficient bureaucracy and one that is designed to still bring the bureaucracy within law? Or is the attack an attempt to undo all legal limits and create a, a pseudo-mystical bureaucratic machine in a rule by decree? And for her, these pan movements uh, saw laws to be not only incompatible with power, they were sinful man-made snares that prevented the full development of the divine power of these movements. And so these were anti-legal movements, and they saw as bureaucracy as the way to embrace the full power of their movements. So on 249, she can write, it is the absoluteness of movements, which more than anything else separates them from party structures and their partiality. These absolute movements are above parties and above partiality and thus become simply about power. And they justify their claim to overrule all objections of individual conscience or law. She says the leaders of these pen movements began to tell the mob that each of its members could become a lofty, all-important walking embodiment of something ideal if he would only join the movement. And this is that feeling of power that they offer to the mob and the masses. The third part of, of this chapter is called Movements versus Parties. And, and the point is that these pan movements are movements. They're not parties. Parties for Arendt in the end are interest-based. They seek economic or other social interests. The movements though are not about interest. They're about a mood. And so on page 260, she can write, long before Nazism proudly pronounced that though it had a program, it did not need one. So it didn't need a program. Pan-Germanism discovered how much more important for mass appeal a general mood was than laid down outlines and platforms. For the only thing that counts in a movement is precisely that it keeps itself in constant movement. The Nazis, she says, referred to the Weimar Republic as die Systemzeit, the, the, the time of the system. And the implication was that the Weimar Republic was sterile. It lacked dynamism. It was a system. It had laws. It had constitutions. You had checks and balances. Things went slowly. It was boring. And that boringness is exactly what the problem was. She cites in a wonderful footnote where she talks by, by someone named Berdyaev, talks about how uh, a Russian comes to France and says the French have no idea of freedom because everything is sort of stagnant here. There's no revolution. There's no radicalness. 
And so the decisive invention of the pan movements, she says, was not that they claimed to be outside or above the party system, but that they called themselves movements. And, and you know, if you look at the wide predominance of movements in modern politics today in the 20, in 2023, all over the world, the rise of movements, whether it's the MAGA movement or the Black Lives Matter movement or the environmental movement or the populist movements, the fact that everyone's calling themselves movements is indicative of this recognition of the power of moods over actual uh, interests. The totalitarian state, she'll say, this is citing Carl Schmidt on page uh, 266. She says, the totalitarian state is a state in appearance only, and the movement no longer truly identifies itself even with the needs of the people. The movement by now is above state and people, ready to sacrifice both for the sake of ideology. The movement is state as well as people, and neither the present state nor the German people can even be conceived without the movement. And this, this is the mood that she's interested in here. One or two just caveats, and then we'll end. This is one of the reasons that Arendt becomes convinced that a two-party a two political system like you had in Britain and in America was preferable to a multi-party representational system, a parliamentary system like you had on the continent. And the reason is, is that in a, in a multi-party system, each party represents a particular interest. The conservative party represents the landed elite. The green party represents the environment. The social Democrat represents the workers. None of them have to actually represent the state above a particular interest. Whereas in a two-party system, in order to get over 50%, the parties actually have to identify themselves beyond a particular interest with the national interest. And, and she thinks that that, change, that difference is key. And it's one of the reasons, I mean, I know so many people today on the, in, in my world think, oh, we need, it's, it's better to have a parliamentary system of many parties because then you can find a party you fully agree with that represents your interests. But that for our rent is exactly what is dangerous because it pushes you to pick a party that's not representing a national interest, but a particular interest. And in doing so, you might become embarrassed that you're so fundamentally focused on your interest and that turns your justification for pursuing your interest into an ideology. The last point uh, of interest or, or, or that I'm going to talk about in this chapter is she then makes this distinction between fascism and totalitarianism. Whereas totalitarianism is a movement, fascism is not. And again, here's another super controversial and fascinating uh, aspect of this chapter. For her, Mussolini, who is a true fascist, is not someone who is dangerous, right? Because Mussolini used a movement to seize power, but once he seized power, he, in a sense, sought to elevate the state, the army and other institutions, and he sought to create a national interest. And so she says the state, even as a one-party dictatorship, was felt to be in the way of the ever-changing needs of an ever growing movement in totalitarian countries, but not in Italy. And so she actually says that there can be good democratic reasons to elect a dictator every once in a while, which by the way, the Romans knew as well, right? The, the Romans had a, a, a mechanism for when there was a need for it, electing a dictator who would be temporary. I, I'm not here at all suggesting that Arendt is in favor of electing a dictator at but she doesn't think electing a dictator is devastating to liberal freedom, whereas she does think that electing that 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 having a totalitarian government is devastating to freedom. All right, I'm going to end there. I mean, this is a fascinating, big, difficult chapter, maybe one of the most difficult chapters in all of Arendt's work. But I'll stop there and um, open it to questions. Jason. Okay. So I wanted to uh, take us back to page 235, where you specifically brought about the one question that really kind of broke my soul here reading this chapter, mm -hmm. which was the 
the denial of a common humanity based on additional interaction. And I wanted to know, is that going to be something that is specific to large groups? I know this is more sociology question. Or is it going to be consistent regardless of the scale of interactions we're talking about? It's a, it's a, thanks, Jason. It's a great question. You know, let's just look at the passage because it's one that when I teach this book, I spend a fair bit of time on and, and it's worth reading. So on uh, midway through 235, she writes, the appeal of tribal isolation and master rice ambitions was partly due to an instinctive feeling that mankind, whether a religious or humanistic ideal, implies a common sharing of responsibility. So let's just see if we can understand that, that, that there's an instinctive feeling that if we're all human, whether this is a religious feeling or a humanistic feeling, we have a common sense of responsibility for our fellow humans. And then look at this footnote, right? 41, where she says, citing Fryman, we know our own people its qualities and its shortcomings. Mankind, we do not know. And we refuse to care or get enthusiastic about it. Where does it begin? Where does it end? That we are supposed to love because it belongs to mankind. Are the decadent or half-bestial Russian peasant of the Mir the Negro of East Africa, the half-breed of German Southwest Africa, or the unbearable Jews of Galicia and Romania, all members of mankind? One can believe in the solidarity of the Germanic peoples. Whoever is outside this sphere does not matter to us. That's something that is obviously difficult for many of us to read or listen to. But she continues... The shrinking of geographic distances made this political actuality of the first order. It also made idealistic talk about mankind and the dignity of man an affair of the past, simply because all these fine and dreamlike notions with their time-honored traditions suddenly assumed a terrifying timeliness. Even insistence on the sinfulness of all men, of course absent from the phraseology of the liberal protagonists of mankind, by no means suffices for an understanding of the fact that the idea of humanity purged of all sentimentality has the very serious consequence that in one form or another, men must assume responsibility for all crimes committed by men. And she continues, tribalism and racism are the very realistic, if very destructive ways of escaping this predicament of common responsibility. Clearly, she's here critical of tribalism and racism, right? She's critical of these ideas that we should deny mankind, that we should deny the dignity of, of man. And yet, somehow, I think she sees tribalism, if not racism. Racism, she thinks, is the death of mankind. But she says, I mean, in the sentence before where we began on page 235, the last sentence of the first full paragraph, she says, the more peoples know about one another, the less they want to recognize other peoples as their equals, the more they recoil from the ideal of humanity. There's just, there's a psychological claim here that she's making, right? That the more we know about people who we see as other to us, as different from us, the more somehow, even if we can like them, even if we can have dinner with them and friends with them and work with them and, and, and have them in our classes, somehow she's saying it makes us question this idea that there's just one humanity because the more we know them, the more we know they're different if they're really different. I mean, this is a question you're all going to have to like ask about yourselves in a deep, in your soul, right? When you get to know someone who's really different from you and you find them fascinating and you find them interesting and you talk to them and you do things with them and you become friends with them. But if they really fundamentally believe that the Messiah has come and you believe that the Messiah hasn't come, or if they fundamentally believe, you know, that revenge is a necessary 
to be human and you think revenge is evil, at some point, the more you know them and the more you understand that on the one hand, you like them and agree with them. And yet on the other hand, you find them fully other. Doesn't that actually challenge your belief in humankind? And that's what she's saying. And that tribalism is, is a reaction to that feeling. And that there are ways to overcome tribalism for her. But those ways of overcoming tribalism are political. They're forming political institutions that allow us to exist in a common political world, even if we don't trust each other and don't always like each other. That's politics for Hannah Arendt. But the idea that we're all going to just like each other and agree with each other is to her an affront to humanity, an affront to the idea of plurality, to the affront to the idea that we actually are fundamentally different. And the rise of these pan movements and these tribal nationalisms is in a sense a result of people's rejection of the liberal idea that was dominant that we all should just get along and somehow be part of one humanity. And, um, and it was a rebellion against a sense of many people that that's just wrong. I understand that this is going to be a, a discomforting uh, idea for many of us, but at least try and understand what she's saying. James. Roger, when I first started reading this chapter the first time through, I thought, man, what I should do is just chop it all up in little pieces and smoke it, and then maybe I would get it. And then I started starting to comprehend what is going on, which you just so beautifully articulated, and I found myself saying, oh, my God, let's go MAGA, baby. Let's go MAGA and find out what's really, really out there. because. The, the forces at play that are described in this chapter are happening right now. And I just, I can't wait. I can't wait to see the games played. What are we going to do? And I, I, my little pussy version of myself, which is this humanist and ambassador for UNICEF and all mankind and blah, 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 out the window, baby. What's my next step? Yeah, James. She stripped me clean. <laughs> James, I love the way you put things. Thank you so much. You know, there's an un undoubted temptation in reading this. And not only a you, you should be asking yourselves the questions you're asking. James is asking, you know, and and there are ways in which. Look, there are many movements in politics right now, right? The. You know, if you take the MAGA movement, it's one. And in some levels, you can see a lot of parallels between a pan-Slavic, pan-German movement and a MAGA movement. They're both, there's a, there's a real disdain for the state. There's a disdain for legality. Yes, yes. Um, there's a, you know, if you, if you take seriously some of what the former president has been saying and desire to in a sense, replace many of the, or eliminate many of the, you know, the bureaucracies uh, and replace them with people of his own shoes. On the other hand, you know, if you take it, you could, you could look at it the other way and, and say, you know, they want to get rid of some of these bureaucracies to bring back a kind of uh, what they see as a respect for law. I, I, you know, we can, I don't want to get into an argument about it, but I think the biggest difference is that she sees she sees these movements as futural, not focused on the greatness of a past. Whereas the explicit rhetoric of just to give the example of MAGA is very much about a return to what made America great in a past and not a futural. It's not about bringing a racialized group of people who are outside of the current America state into America. It's, it's, it's not an imperialist movement in that sense. It's much more of a, of a, of a, of a sort of backwards looking nation state movement, at least as, you know, as I've understood it, I, I don't claim to know everything about it. And so that would make it quite different 
from some of these um, movements that she's describing. But the, the, the overarching idea of a movement that is clearly aimed at weakening and destroying elements of the state and mobilizing racial and tribal language in order to destroy institutions of the state uh, is, I think, there. And so um, I don't think it's a direct analogy, but I think there's a lot to, to unite them. And, and by the way, there are other movements going on around the world, also in this country, that also dislike certain rules and limits and laws and, and very much want to replace limiting state legal structures uh, with decrees, but from another direction. And so I think what you can say is that the, the, the mood of dissatisfaction with boring, uh, limited political life that tries to preserve freedoms but doesn't try to make radical changes is, is clearly unpopular with many people in the country and in the world on both the left and the right. That's certainly a dangerous moment. And I think that's one thing you should take from reading this book. Add a little climate change and we're really going to have a hot time together. Exactly. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. Thank you, Roger. Thank you. Dina. Hi, um, I had a question about the intellectuals uh, you've discussed uh, based on page 226. I'm wondering, it, it's interesting because on the one hand, I think later on Arendt will say that intellectuals represent or are illustrative of the atomization um, of individuals in mass society. Um, and because they're illustrative of that, they sort of self-abandon into this movement. But what what else do they get out of it, uh, being part of a movement? Um, if if in general she considers one considers them to be non-joiners, I think she says that on three seventeen. So later, is there what is the what is the attraction of of for an intellectual to to lose themselves in a movement if all along they've sort of exhibited a atomized way of life? Yeah, uh, that's a great question, Dina. She won't answer it fully until it's the section on the the alliance between intellectuals and the mob, which I'm trying to figure out where it is in the book. I think it's going to be in. I think it's a, cl a classless society. Oh, it's in a classless society. Yeah. And in that, I, I, it's on page 334. She'll, she'll answer your question, right? Okay. Um, she'll say the attraction which the totalitarian movements exert on the elite so long as and wherever they have not seized power has been perplexing because the patently vulgar and arbitrary positive doctrines of totalitarianism are more conspicuous to the outsider and mere observer than the general mood which pervades the pre-totalitarian movement. But she then goes on to discuss Bertolt Brecht's Three Penny Opera, Dry Grosje Oper. What you'll come to see in these, in these sections is that the elite were so disdainful of the status quo of the corruption of the of the feeling of you know capitalism and money running the world of the utter disdain that the elite had for kind of a a, a corrupt capitalist bureaucratic world that they took incredible joy in standing aloof from that world and watching it burn. Mm -hmm. And so the joy that the elite take is the joy of destruction. Mm -hmm. They see themselves as superior. And as, as you said, standing apart. And in standing apart, they, they see themselves as the group that's willing to, without interest, without without having a strong partisan view for the you know for the environmentalists or for the maga people or for the black lives matter or for the you know indigenous rights people they just like seeing all these different ideologues attack the state and watching it fall apart because it's so corrupt mm -hmm. and that's the and that's the interest the elite has she thinks so in a way it's self vindicating in the sense that 
I've stood apart, I've told you, and now. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's a kind of nihilistic watching it burn, right? Mm -hmm. And you see that today. There's a lot of people who take this position. You know, Trump is corrupt and a danger to the republic, but so is Biden corrupt. You know, the Democrats are as bad as the Republicans. You know, what we just want to do is tear it all apart, right? Let it burn. There's a guy who wrote an anonymous article six years ago, no, 10 years in, in 2016 called the 9-11 election, in which he basically argued that the reason to vote for Trump was not because you thought Trump was right or good, but because Trump was the only one who was going to tear the country apart. Mm-hmm. And that we needed that kind of, we needed that kind of destruction to allow the country to be reborn. Um, I forget the guy's name who wrote it. He's a well-known conservative intellectual. He used to write for the Claremont Review a lot, which is where he published that article. But, you know, I think that's a a large, there are a lot of people today who take that position. Listen, thank you all. This has been a great conversation. I hope you enjoy reading Hannah Arendt. Just so you know, if you haven't seen it already, we're going to continue reading this book into the new year. We're not going to finish it by next week, which is the last meeting for 2023. And then after it, um, we're going to start Eichmann in Jerusalem sometime in, in late February, early March, depending on when we finish this book. But the new schedule, at least aspirationally, is up on the website and you can see where it's going. Thank okay. you all very much. Enjoy reading Hannah Arendt and I'll see you next week. Thank you for the insight. Thank you, everyone. Oh, Excellent. Excellent, Professor Roger. Excellent. Yes, thank you. Bye, everybody. Have a great week. Thank you so much for listening. Make sure to follow the podcast and leave us a like in case you enjoyed this week's chapter reading. This is Reading Hannah Arendt with Roger Berkowitz, and we hope you'll be back next time. If you'd like to participate in discussions, please become a member of the Hannah Arendt Center and join our weekly reading groups. We'd love to see you every Friday. For more info, visit our website at hac.bard.edu and follow us on Twitter at Arendt Center or Instagram at Hannah Arendt Center at Bard. My name is Jana Mader and I look forward to welcoming you back next week for another episode of Reading Hannah Arendt with Roger Berkowitz. Goodbye and auf Wiedersehen.